0: Some common sense. Yes,
1: sir. They have the cars stopped in Tandon Grantch, my We
0: still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me today is a treat because, you know, during the day, most of the time he's teaching at Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut. And here we have with us today, retired NYPD sergeant, professor, law degree, Mike Geary. How are you doing today, Mike?
2: Doing well, Billy. Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, it's great to have you. You know, there's some like, I hate to say like there's brand new stuff in the Brian Koberger case, but there is some uh, new uh, things that we should be concerned with, of course. And probably the biggest thing is the upcoming deposition uh, with Brittany Funk. And, you know, we, we've given our opinions, people talking heads on the media have given their opinions. And when the private investigator, I think his last name was Batandi. Yes, who claims this is going to be like exculpatory information. I think that that is a little bit of a stretch when they say exculpatory, you know, information that tends to clear the defendant or tends to show the defendant's innocence. And what they may really be trying to do is, uh, in the words of Bobby Chacon on Law and Order, we'll play it a little bit later, is they want to dirty up this witness. And what does that mean, dirty up a witness? And I'm going to let you respond to that, Mike.
2: Yeah, Billy. The uh, they're trying to look. uh, Bethany Funk. They know that you know all those the the, uh, students, all four students, and Bethany uh, and and Dylan were um, all you know drinking, um, and they were out partying very very late, and they weren't really aware of what was going on. Probably in terms of they're living separate er uh, three separate uh, floors of the house, and they probably have very inconsistent memories, and, and that's something to be expected um you'd you know if uh, if people many people could see an uh, a car accident uh, a homicide some sort of crime take place and they're, they're in different areas one's across the street one's on a third floor roof looking down they're going to have very different views and very different interpretations of what happened so they're what they're trying to do i believe at this point you know looking at uh, what we know of the evidence is that they're probably trying to show that there's some inconsistency between uh, what um, uh, DM and what Bethany Funk say and what the uh, have said to the uh, investigators and what the uh, police department and the forensic team and the uh, crime scene people and the um, uh, the coroner's office have said is the timeline of the deaths. And if that is so, that there's an inconsistency, you know, so what? That, that's fine because people's memories are affected by, you know, sleep where they are, their perception. And I think what they want to do is just get her on the stand and just keep you know, hammering up there's four or five or six things that she said that are slightly different than what uh, Dylan, the other one, said and uh, what law enforcement believes, they just want to dirty her up a little bit by getting to the point and that they'll make a trial. Also, right here in the preliminary hearing in front of the judge is that this witness is very unreliable in their recollections. And therefore, um, when they get to the trial, you know, six months from now, they can say to the jury, you know, at the end, you know, Bethany Funk, it was very, very inconsistent. She's unreliable. You know, basically, please really don't put too much stock in what she said. She's really not a, a reliable witness. And Her testimony is probably really irrelevant to Brian Coburg's guilt or innocence. Just dirty dirty her up by making people doubt uh, the veracity of her, uh, the accuracy of her statements.
0: Well, you know, Mike, it's a funny thing, and I'm glad you brought it up so succinctly. One of the reasons that investigators interview people in great depth right after an incident occurred is because that (laughs) should be, and in fact, I believe it is, the most, the clearest memory you're going to have of what actually occurred. And as time goes on, your memory starts to fade and you start remembering things differently. Does that mean you're lying or not telling the truth? No, you could just start remembering it differently. And that's why law enforcement and investigators take great pains to lock in a statement. Let's get that statement and let's get it down on paper and let's get the witness to sign it and to make sure it's clear. And if there's anything that they want to change, that they don't believe that that's exactly what happened. And that's why, you know, you may go over it five, six, seven times to get it correct. And as I said, that statement taken by skilled investigators should be the closest to the actual truth and to the recollection of a witness. And you also hit it right on the head when you said, Five people could see the same incident. And it's very important that after that incident, if they're going to be witnesses, the police separate those witnesses. Because if witnesses are allowed to talk to each other, the strongest personality is going to put their feelings as to what occurred. And you have to let each person be interviewed, of course, separately and not become tainted by another witness. And let them recall it and let the police and the investigators, the detectives, get it down on paper, what they saw. And again, that will be the closest to the truth. And I say closest because, again, people's memories, it can change what you actually remember. I mean, I, I defy anyone to say they have total recollection after six months or after a year. And therefore, hours after a incident is, the, again, the clearest recollection that a witness is going to have mike
2: yeah ex, um, excited utterances are considered the most accurate and earnest and forthcoming e- uh, uh, testimony that you can have uh, we, i talk about this in my evidence class when we discuss and we do discuss situations where uh, like i said a person's in you know the, somebody's watching a car accident something he's watching something happen and they're talking about it to the police and we do a little play acting And uh, we I even uh, in one of my classes, I used to uh, get mugged in front of everybody during the middle of a uh, of a lecture. And then I would just get up. The person would run run out the door. They'd run in, run out, mug me, run out the door. And then I'd continue on with class. And then later on, like 30 minutes later, right before class ends, I'd say, "Okay, everybody, how many people were there? What were they wearing? What did they say? Did they display any weapons? And here's a group of students sitting 15 feet from me. And you'd be amazed at the variety of answers you get. So inconsistencies show an earnestness. And, and that is OK, because Jerry jury understands that. If you're a prosecutor or you're a judge and you hear every single witness to a crime or to, a, to a, you know, some sort of incident say the exact same thing as if it was scripted, then you know something's wrong. When people say things that may be inconsistent, you know they're telling the truth. You know, those excited utterances are considered the most earnest um, kind of testimony you have because it is without planning, without guile. It's just something that somebody spontaneously says, and that's considered fresh. It's considered uh, accurate. However, later on, of course, when they are interviewed by the police and they're starting to go over it, and, you know, they start to think about it. They close their eyes. They start to relive it. They have some, they'll maybe change the, you know, what they uh, time and things like that and references, what they may have said to someone um, after the first initial excitement calmed down. Um, that's all normal. And the idea that the uh, inconsistencies would be considered exculpatory, you know, that's a real stretch. But it's coming from an investigator for the uh, defense. And, you know, as as we as we always see consciousness of guilt, they see exculpatory evidence looking at the exact same set of facts. So there's nothing to worry about in terms of the evidence, you know, how strong the evidence is against Brian Kohlberger. Um, This is uh, they're they're doing their job. The defense attorneys are doing their job. They're zealously advocating for Brian Kohlberger. That's their canon of ethics. That's what they have to do. I would do the same thing if I was them, and I would classify everything, too, as exculpatory, even if it's just inconsistent. That's all.
0: Well, you know, Mike, one of the things also that psychologists have recently have done studies on, and psychologists claim that eyewitness identification is unreliable yeah. to the point that they've um, convinced most police departments and I'm not going to get into this because it's a whole other topic, Right. to do something called double blind lineups. Mm -hmm. And because psychologists have claimed that police personnel more or less steer the identification of the guilty person. Oh, well, I shouldn't say the guilty person, of the defendant that's in the lineup. So in essence, I and I really don't know, with police facilities being what they are, how they can actually do a lineup where, it's possible for the police not to know who the defendant is. Because if the defendant walks out of the precinct after, after being arrested, someone in the police department is getting suspended. So for them not to know who the defendant is in the case is very risky, very dangerous. I don't know exactly how they do it. But according to psychologists, identification, the procedure of identification and eyewitness identification is unreliable and you know to to tag that into something else that's why video is so so unbelievably important because video sometimes identifies the perpetrator for us and but lineups show-ups a show-up folks for those that don't know and we love to teach here every once in a while if there's a crime on the street say there's a stick-up And the police have the uh, victim in the car with them and they do what's called a canvas for the perpetrator. And if they spot the perpetrator on the street and the victim says, that's him, and the police arrest him, that's a good identification. That's called a show up. It's a one-on-one display of the suspect to the victim. Now, the police can't be like, hey, is that the guy? You know, because that's, of course, prejudicial. However, the courts, because of the time, or the not a lot of time that's expired between the incident and apprehending the perpetrator, the courts have allowed showups. Now, a lineup, Micah, you can explain that it's a totally different thing. Tell them what a the lineup is.
2: Yeah, lineup. You could do like a photo array kind of lineup with uh, the the uh, the suspects uh, picture along with five other pictures, or you could do that in person. You know, lineup the traditional one you see on TV. Uh, you know uh, for movies where you have five fillers five uh, men or five women depending on you know the the gender of the uh, uh, suspect and you should have them in a uh, all against the wall with numbers um, they should be of fairly similar height weight build hair color if you can you know that sort of thing uh, to tr- as to as best you can try not to suggest, um, who the person is, who the suspect,
0: the you know, Mike, just, a, just a little aside, something funny. Yeah. One time we had a defendant who was like six foot eight. And we are oh, like, geez. how the hell are we going to get fillers <laughs> that are anywhere near his height? So we just made it clear we can't have them stand up.
2: Yeah, we just sit them down. down.
0: Because in the lineup pa- paperwork that a defense attorney will read, it gives the height and the weight of the defendant and the fillers. So a, a six foot eight stick up guy with a gun how are you going to get fillers for that? And very uh, difficult. So we yeah. had to use regular height people and just not have them stand up. And there's yeah. been times in lineups where I've actually, with a, a scripto pen, painted a mustache on people. <laughs> and it actually worked. It looked pretty good, you know, because you're right. looking through the two-way glass. Right, right. And it actually looked like a real mustache. I, I should I should went <laughs> to Hollywood. Hollywood with my makeup skills. But uh, so that's the difference in a, in a show up and a lineup. And Mike also alluded to a photo array. That's a photo lineup. And that's another way that victims will identify a perpetrator. They'll go into a precinct and the detective will put in the criteria of the person who, say, robbed them. Uh, what did the guy look like? Okay, he was a male Hispanic. He was five foot seven. He was uh, about 150 pounds. He was muscular, what clothes he was wearing. I'll put that criteria into a computer database and I'll come up sometimes with four or 500 photos of a defendant that fits that uh, identification. And then what happens if the person picks out the perpetrator, that's not the end of it. The detective has to do certain checks because many times, a victim will pick out a perpetrator who's incarcerated upstate or on Rikers Island. And that means that that person could not have done the lineup. So then it was a bad identification. So that happens all the time. And the other thing is, is, in some respect, agreeing with the psychologist, is that if someone looks at hundreds of photos, basically their brain turns to mush. And they probably will never identify this person at least in a photo, or maybe in a physical lineup, it'd be a possibility. Mike?
2: Yeah, the the photos tend to flatten everything out because they're not three dimensional, and um, you know it's better to see someone in person. I remember once in the four six, we had a guy who uh, he was uh, very heavy set, and we had a, a picture of him, and nobody could pick him out of. And we they suspected, the detectives suspected him of committing a number of crimes, but he had lost about. 150 pounds. And when they got, got him the next time, you, you look at this old photograph of him and you look at this new picture of him. And, and I remember putting the picture up right next to his face. And Pete the detective said, I could never pick that person out because his face was now slim. You could see his cheekbones. He had no double chin. And, you know, his, he just looked totally different. And so, they, you know, they're they it's hard from a picture it, people, you know, that's why I uh, as as maybe suggestive is, you know, on on the scene, kind of uh, quick uh, show ups like right on the street. Um, I think they're the most reliable because they are the ones that happen quickly. And you're seeing the person very well, while, while their image is fresh in their mind. So from the defendant, uh, the victim's point of view, I think that's the best. But um, see, pictures are very difficult, and and lineups, um, that's difficult too because you know you have to fill them in. What happens if the person, the victim, uh, is looking at a lineup and the perp had like reddish hair? How many people are you going to get in a lineup that have you know that kind of hair? You know, you you, you know, somebody has brown hair, black hair, that's easy to get fillers, um, and then you're getting cops to have to be fillers. So cops might all be clean shaven, and then you have a perp. Who may be who the suspect is who maybe may have a goatee mustache beard things like that it makes right. it very difficult i like the on scene type of thing because when you're hunting for somebody you grab a person if you grab the wrong person a person that's actually innocent you want them to be identified quickly and if they're innocent you want to let them go so you can continue on um you know canvassing the area for the for the perp. so um you know mike and
0: also an, an eyewitness identification that's not where the investigation stops no. You'll also find out, you know if the person has an alibi, where was this person prior? Could that person have done that lineup? excuse me that that robbery in the time frame that we know that it occurred? or were they somewhere else? Check video if they say, I oh, was in this location at that time. and if the person's telling the truth, you can find that out. So detectives do as much investigation trying to prove uh, someone's guilt as they do if someone is in fact innocent, they don't want to arrest this person could it could be a false identification and we and law enforcement understand that and we don't want to, we believe me we don't want to put anyone in jail or in prison that didn't commit the crime i uh, at least all the detectives i ever worked with didn't
2: yeah i mean because the the uh consequences are so catastrophic um there's a very famous book i can't think of the author's name uh picking cotton It's about a gentleman who was uh, accused of, tried and convicted of rape. And the person who ultimately, they ultimately found out that he was innocent. But the person who actually committed the rape could have looked like his twin brother. It was just remarkable. And you could see why the the, uh, traumatized woman who was raped that that night when it happened, um, you know, got it wrong. But she was being totally earnest. And until you saw them in court together, you you couldn't believe that they were so similarly looking. Because, you know, there is a lot hanging uh, on this identification. If it's robbery, it's one thing. If it's a homicide, it's a totally different thing. So cops never, ever want to lock up someone who actually is factually innocent.
0: No way. You know, Law and Crime did a very good presentation today on the hearing uh, and the interview with uh bethany funk and i'm going to play a little bit of that and what i just want to say one of the best the very best talking heads on tv is retired fbi agent bobby Chicone, a real cop a hundred percent cop a lot of these talking heads <laughs> believe me that's all they are, are talking heads bobby Chicone is a 100 cop his father and his brother both NYPD sergeants. I guess that prejudices me a little bit, but he worked uh, in in Brooklyn with a homicide task force with the NYPD. So I can't say enough good things about him. So he's in this uh, little law and order piece.
3: Witnesses, the state's witnesses, maybe even present their own evidence. So it's really interesting.
0: So as we wait for all that,
3: There have now been some recent developments that I want to get into. And that brings me right now to retired FBI agent and attorney, Bobby Chacon. Bobby, so good to see you. Friend of the program. Haven't seen you on Sidebar in quite some time, so it's good to have you back.
1: It's good to be back, Jesse. Thanks a lot.
3: Yeah, so let's start with the major development. The major development regarding Bethany Funk. Bethany Funk was one of the two surviving roommates in that house. She was in the house when the killings happened in the early morning hours of November 13th. Now, Koberger's defense originally subpoenaed her to appear at the preliminary hearing. But then both sides agreed to quash that subpoena because Funk has agreed to be interviewed by the defense in Reno, Nevada, where she lives. Now, the question is, why do they want to speak with her? Well, according to an affidavit uh, that was filed by the defense, the defense's criminal investigator, Richard Batanti, wrote, quote, has information material to the charges against Mr. Koberger. She was interviewed by police on several occasions. She disclosed things she heard and things she saw portions of information. Ms. Funk has is exculpatory to the defendant. Ms. Funk's information is unique to her experiences and cannot be provided by another witness. Wow. Okay. So Bobby, as we know, Exculpatory means information that would show Brian Koberger's innocent. What do you make of that?
1: Well, yes, it does. That's exactly what exculpatory means. However, the 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 interpretation of whether a piece of testimony is exculpatory or not is is very open to interpretation. And so, while the investigator says she has um, things or, or stuff that is exculpatory to Brian Koberger, that's their interpretation of that, whatever that be. So, so, you know, arguably in a case like this, in this case in particular, she is a, you know, probably the most important witness. She's the only living eyewitness, if you want to call her an eyewitness, to the crimes that happened. So she.
3: Well, well, also we have Dylan Mortensen, who's the other surviving roommate. She's the one who allegedly saw the killer. Um, So it's, you know, that's a whole separate issue. Both both of
1: these people in the house are really the only two eyewitnesses, so to speak. And so they the defense is going to want to get into them as much as they can. They want to, you know, what we call dirty them up if they can at trial. And anything that they can get to before trial helps them. So any statement, so it, as part of the discovery process, that the, the defense gets all of the statements that this witness has made to the police, uh, you know, in, in any way. And so they've reviewed those statements now and they want to talk more at length about those things to this witness um, in, 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 in before, before uh, cross examination, because I've, I've had it where in my own statements where defense litigators will get into the littlest detail that you give and try to make you give an inconsistent statement prior to trial so they can.
0: Mike, I want to comment on that because one of the things I think we want, we have to realize and our listeners realize is that, this is a deposition. It's not the trial. So is this a Hail Mary pass to try, as as uh, Bobby Chacon says, dirty up this witness? Why are they doing this in a deposition? There hasn't even been the probable cause hearings yet. This is not the trial. Why are they? You think the judge, based on what she could possibly say, the judge will say, oh, we're not going to have a trial. There's no probable cause. I I, I can't see that happening. So. Explain to me why this is happening.
2: Well, usually depositions are in civil trials. Um, you don't really see them in in criminal trials, but I, I I imagine because this everybody's kind of spread out a little bit from Idaho and their different states. Um, the judge is trying to be, you know, as as fair, minded as she can be regarding uh, the treatment of Brian Kohlberger. Um, you know everybody knows, you know, exactly. There's a lot of evidence, uh, scientific evidence and, you know, electronic evidence, but uh, they're trying to be fair. And this is a, uh, what they're going to do is to say, okay, look, um, you have what you believe is exculpatory evidence. Now exculpatory might mean just that there's some, you've seen some evidence or some testimony from, um, you know, Bethany that is inconsistent with, with uh, Dylan Mortensen or someone else. Um, And that's fine. Uh, And they may have identified her as the weaker, and I don't mean, this is no disrespect to Ms. Funk, maybe the weaker of the two in terms of their uh, consistencies between the time they got, they talked to police originally and the time they made an official statement. Maybe they feel that, Her statement is a little bit more. They could could punch some holes in it a little bit more than they could punch in punch holes in Dylan Mortensen's testimony. So they may figure that she's the the weakest. uh, Get her, get her in in a yes uh, a deposition. It's sworn testimony, so that um, she she will be uh, you know she'll have to swear it's the truth. She'll have to swear to the accuracy of the statements, and uh, she'll give. Another version of what she remembers. Obviously, at this point, um, months have gone by. She'll probably give a testimony that will be consistent with what she said originally and somewhat inconsistent because, you know, how you ask a question helps determine how the person answers. So they're going to go after her to see if they could just make her seem less reliable. And then later on at trial, maybe the prosecution might say uh, let's not put Bethany funk on she, she was she really appeared to be too unreliable or they might say Bethany did great in the deposition. we've got to make sure we're going to put her on And same thing with with, with um, Dylan Mortenson you know um, because uh, just you know you always want to have uh, uh, your own witnesses who are the most consistent and the most reliable So it's there it's the judges, I think way to try to even things out a little bit, give give the, the defense its fair share of uh, opportunities to um, see, uh, you know, get some of their uh, statements before they actually go to the preliminary hearing and months before they go to trial. It will help the results, whatever they are, good or bad for, for uh, Miss Funk, that'll help the prosecution because then the prosecution will be able to decide also um, whether or not they want to rearrange a potential uh, witness lineup for the trial.
0: You know, Mike, someone asked in the chat uh, that she'll be represented by an attorney at the deposition. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't think any attorney would. Oh, yes. the, for the prosecution would let defense beat her up unprotected by a, an attorney for the prosecution. I mean, that wouldn't be fair because what do we have a 20 year old, 21 year old girl who's never testified as far as I know, has never testified before in court or in an adversarial Mm -hmm. type of interview. And the prosecution would not allow her or these defense attorneys to go in there and just beat her up with no protection whatsoever.
2: Yeah. She's going to have an attorney sitting right next to her during the deposition and if they'll probably ask what we call, you know, uh, direct questions, which are generally are open ended, which allow, um, a witness to actually explain things. And that's perfectly fine on direct examination, uh, how things might get testy with a defense team is if they start asking, um, you know, uh, leading questions, which are, um, you know, cross-examination questions, which, really are statements which suggest the answer like you didn't have your glasses on did you you were drunk that night weren't you you know there's no way to explain it's just very accusatory, you know accusatorial it's very uh, acrimonious and you're gonna she'll need a an attorney to say hold on counselor you know we object to that question you know that sort of thing and that's a good thing because if she testifies at trial if she testifies at a preliminary hearing um She's going to be exposed to that sort of things. And she'll always have an attorney, either her own private attorney um, at this particular deposition or at the trial. She'll have the state's attorney, uh, the district attorney to, uh, you know, um, intercede on her behalf to make sure that the defense follows you know the proper conduct in court.
0: You know, Mike, one of the things also we watched some of the, uh, the testimony, even in the uh, Alec Murdoch case by some of the police personnel and just some witnesses that may not have been trained well in the art of testifying, which there is. And especially, especially at a deposition, the witness should give very, very, very brief answers. Maybe one word if possible, yes or no, but not run at the mouth. Because that's when a, a skilled defense attorney can rip you to shreds. So you give the shortest answers possible and you answer the question In the shortest possible sentences, you can because, as I said, when you extrapolate, you get destroyed. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, they. I remember testifying uh, my first trial, and the district attorney was saying, you know, during trial prep, going over all the old uh, arrest reports. I was with Augie then, and um, you know, and he he always reminded, you know, don't. If I ask you a question, answer the question. You don't have to explain. And then on cross examination. He told me, look, the defense is going to go after you, obviously, you know, and uh, just just do the best you can. Yes or no. Don't try to explain. You know, if I want you to explain, I'll ask you to explain. And I never had any formal training. I always felt very nervous uh, testifying because, um, you know, you're you're trying, you're under pressure. There's, wit- there's a jury there sitting there. I mean, even if you even if you went over all of the evidence, you know, in a couple of days before the trial, make sure you remembered all those little things testifying in front of a jury when you you feel nervous. And then you have a prosecutor who's allowing you to, to just explain, was there a 911 call? What did you know? What did you see? What did you do? Why did you make the arrest? That sort of thing. And then every, and I think Bobby Chacon picked up on this, every little tidbit of information that may be somewhat equivocal, the defense is going to jump all over you. Why did you use this word rather than that word? And it's just like, and then you, you're like trying to explain and and you're not allowed to explain on cross-examination because you're getting leading questions. I remember one time asking the judge, my very first trial, I looked at the judge. I said, your honor, I need to explain the answer. And he smiled at me and he said, officer Geary, just answer yes or no.
0: And yeah. I, it, I, it, it's sort of was, yeah. in a way an unfair an unfair yeah. advantage given to the defense, but then again, the prosecution has many oh, yeah. uh, things that are in there uh, on their side of the court. Oh, yeah. Be real. Question is, why would the state not have done something uh, to prevent this or is the defense just trying to make something out of nothing, struggling? Uh, now you, you you Be real, you explained it pretty well. I can understand what you were trying to ask. And uh, Professor Mike, I'm going to let you answer that.
2: Yeah, the uh, this whole thing with this uh, with the deposition be- before the preliminary hearing, um, you know, it's 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 basic due process, basic fairness. Uh, the judge is trying to be basically fair as much as they can to Brian Koberger. Um And at the preliminary hearing um, in in June, uh, I think we've got about another six weeks to go before we get the preliminary hearing. Um, the judge is going to be very careful to uh, make sure that um you know, uh, Koberger's defense team, you know, gets a fair run at the uh, witnesses. Now, there's not going to be a lot of witnesses. There might be six or seven witnesses, maybe, who knows. They're going to be testifying a lot, I believe, on the electronic evidence and on the blood evidence, the DNA evidence, um, and some crime scene photographs. Um, And so there's not going to be like, you know, 30 witnesses at this sort of thing. There's going to be a a number of them. And the defense has every single right to cross examine them and they'll go hard at them they'll take a fair run at them and and that's what we want in our criminal justice and we want the the prosecutor to, if we're you know if you're charging someone with uh, with murder you better have the goods and this is the one time pre trial that the defense attorneys get a chance to get in their court get those uh, prosecution witnesses under oath and go after them just to, because cross-examination, we believe in our system of law, is, is the best insurer of truthful testimony because you got the evidence being preferred by one side and it's gonna be contested by the other. And we let the jury, which is which is considered the trier of fact, to determine what they think is accurate, what they think is reliable, and that's a good thing. So that's why we're, it's, it's this to-do, It's it's not the biggest to-do in the world, but it's very important for the defense to have this opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Folks, if you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, we cover the real crime and the biggest stories of the day from a police perspective, right? From our, myself, 27 years, Mike Geary, 21 years, Phil Grimaldi, 21 years, and our new a frequent guest, Melanie Little, a retired attorney, we try to give it to you from our perspective. And not just our perspective, but for example, Melanie Little has not been in law enforcement, but she is a fantastic attorney. So it's given different perspectives on what we see. And if you're not subscribed, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, make comments. We love to read your comments and we love to respond to your comments. In addition, we have a Patreon if you want to support us financially with three different levels, and we have a YouTube channel membership with Countum, five different levels, and you can support us that way. Uh, so police off the cuff, real crime stories. You know, Mike, I'm going to play a little bit more of the law and crime uh, interview. And again, I, I really uh, enjoy Mike Chacon, who is uh, he's great. He's, he's, really, he's a real cop, you know, which not all uh, federal agents are.
1: Bring that out at trial as an inconsistent statement and maybe look like your memory is bad or you're lying or you really don't know what you're talking about. That's particularly important in cases of like height. I've seen it done in height where the person says, the witness will say, the guy was about five foot eight. And then the police say, well, could he have been five foot eight or five foot ten? And the person says, well, yeah, he could have been five foot eight, five foot nine, five foot ten in that area. And then the defense says, well, if he could have been five eight or five ten, could he have been six foot? Or six one, and now you've got somebody from five eight to six one, and they dirty up a witness that way, and then the witness's recollection looks really unreliable. And so, in this case, I think what they want to do is they want to get into some of the details of what they told police and try to create seemingly inconsistencies.
3: Exculpatory is kind of that big word. I mean, it makes you say basically saying, "Oh, we can definitively prove that he didn't do it." You know, there's another suspect. We don't know. I mean, exculpatory is the word that they chose. We know that her camp, when they were fighting the subpoena, basically said, quote, um, that this is without support, there's no further information or detail, and they're basically kind of, you know, watering down what information she has. But here's what we do know. Here's what we do know, Bobby, that she and this other roommate, Dylan Mortensen, were inside that residence at the time of the killings, that they were roommates to the victims. We believe that uh, Ms. Funk was in the first floor bedroom. According to the probable cause affidavit that you know came out when they ultimately arrested Brian Koberger, um, according to Funk, uh, she saw Ethan Chapin and Zana Kernodal at a fraternity house from approximately 9 p.m. on November 12th to 1.45 a.m. on November 13th. She also estimated that at approximately 1.45, both Chapin and Kernodal returned to the residence. Um, she also stated that Chapin didn't live in the King Road residence, which we know he was a guest of Pernodal. Um, And she also said, in, or was also said in this probable cause affidavit, that Funk and Mortensen both told police that the other occupants of the home returned back November 13th at around 2 a.m. and that they were asleep or at least in their rooms by approximately 4 a.m. But there's one other thing in the probable cause affidavit, apparently police reviewed forensic downloads from Funk's phone and determined that the homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. So so that's important information about the timeline. Remember, according to this cr- criminal investigator, that whatever information Funk has, it's unique to her. Is there anything about that, the fact that she's so instrumental in putting the timeline that the defense is trying to chip away at? Because if they can say the killings didn't happen at these times, her timelines wrong that may help brian kohlberger
1: sure it may help him but it's hard to see how that can be exculpatory in other words you know unless they're prepared to prove that brian kohlberger was somewhere else at that time if they can say oh well it, it must have happened between here and here but we have proof that brian was over here at that time that can conceivably be exculpatory but Oftentimes, a defense will say something like, well, this proves that there might have been somebody else in the house or something like that. And that's not necessarily exculpatory. You know, if if there was somebody else involved in the crime, that's not necessarily exculpatory to this defendant. They might be able to, they, they might be trying to say that, you know, you have video of his Elantra in a certain place at a certain time. And if the, crimes happened here how could he have been in that house when his elantra is on video over here at that time so they're they're trying to you know play with the timeline and they think they may think they have something like that where you know if you're saying this is him and this elantra which we're going to say it is well then the times don't match because the elantra is on video over here and now i I don't agree that that's what the timeline shows but that may be the line that they're going down
0: you know Uh, very interesting, Mike, that, uh, I look, if I was the prosecution, I would not allow at all for Brittany Funk to be beat up at this hearing. I would just not allow it. I would be objecting every two seconds because again, she's a very important witness. And when you have a private investigator using the word exculpatory, which when you have a, a, a great uh, FBI agent like Bobby Chacon, who also has a law degree, by the way, all you guys get these law degrees on your way towards ours, I guess, you know, no, no easy thing to do, especially when you're working, when you're a, a working FBI agent or work. I think actually uh, Bobby Chacone got his before he went on the FBI, but I know a lot of people, uh, probably yourself included, got their law degrees while they were on the police department, which is. Uh, it's nearly impossible. I don't know how you guys do it. It's unbelievable and kudos to you. Lots of coffee. (laughs) Yeah. Lots of coffee and lots of, you know, uh, basically all you can really do while you're in law school is answer phones because you you can't be out on patrol. You just can't do that. Anyway, as I said in this, this hearing, this deposition, she is an important witness. And you know, one of the biggest things and you know this Mike from being a police officer as well as an attorney what defense attorneys try to do is they try to dirty you up with a timeline. And I'm using Bobby Chacon's word, dirty you up. They try to lock you into times. And when he was talking about uh, the, the time that apparently the murders happened, I think they have it down even to a narrower time frame than they just said. I think it's more like 4.15, between 4.15 and 4.20. They have it almost uh, with the delivery of that food, Uh, certain electronic and you know something and thank God for electronic evidence and every time I think of that uh, New York Times article as the one who tried to impeach electronic evidence I was like oh my god you're so wrong you wrote you're a good writer but you're so wrong about that electronic evidence is the smoking if we can say something's a smoking gun and I know a lot of people out there don't like that expression but electronic evidence is such good evidence So solid evidence. And they, because of that, they've been able to lock down this time frame to a much tighter, instead of way out here, it's much Mm -hmm. tighter, it's in here. Uh, So they they can really, I don't know how defense attorneys can really, you know, again, muddy someone up through uh, arguing about the time frame.
2: Yeah, Billy, I mean, she's made at least several statements to the police, and maybe there was an inconsistency there, and that's fine. And if she's uh, now going to do a deposition, she may say something that's a little bit inconsistent there too. And so going to trial, you you know, the defense is going to be like, okay, well, she's made a number of inconsistencies. So therefore, you know, she really shouldn't be believed. If, if I'm the prosecution in this case, when it comes to the preliminary hearing, I'm going to get her up on the stand, I'll put her up there first. I'm only going to ask her several questions. What time did she get home? What time did she think Did she think that, you know, we're not sure, but what time did she think was her belief uh, that Zane and Chapin got there and then get her off the stand. So then you can get the uh, uh, electronics evidence in and the DNA evidence in. And then what I would do is I would only ask her just a few questions and so then when it's time for the defense attorney to cross-examine her at this preliminary hearing, I would be very aggressive in limiting the cross-examination to only the points that I raised with her on direct examination. And I would insist with the judge that if I ask her just about the uh, you know time and place that the, that the uh, four students got there at the house, and I got her on and off the stand in like five minutes... I'm going to insist that the defense attorneys do not go into any other territory other than rehash what I already opened up and allowed and and admitted at trial. I'm sorry, I I, for the judge's consideration at the preliminary hearing. And I would go after that as hard as I possibly could. This way you protect her uh, from uh, all kinds of tangential attacks about everything else that might have been said. That's what I think. If I'm the prosecutor, that's what I want to do. Just a real, real narrow couple of minutes on the stand on direct and then limit the process, the defense attorneys from attacking her on anything just but what I said there. And I wouldn't go into uh, anything further in terms of the timeline because I want to protect that witness. Um, but and we'll see what the judge says. The judge might. It's up to the judge to to say, I'm going to limit cross examination of the defendant of the defense of the witness to only what was disclosed by the prosecutor on direct, or the judge might say it's a free-for-all. I doubt the judge will say it's a free-for-all. I think the judge will probably just say whatever the prosecution, I'm oh, sorry, whatever the prosecutor has has uh, got the witness to testify to, those particular subjects, they're the only subjects that can be uh, subject to uh, cross examination right here in this preliminary hearing. Remember, this isn't a trial. This is only the prosecutor's burden of proving, uh, you know, probable cause. That's all it is. And I don't think a judge is going to want to give free reign to any defense attorney to beat up a witness, especially uh, a witness who's only talking about, you know, one small thing. I don't think the judge is going to allow it. I think the judge is going to be fair to everybody and give uh, the defense an opportunity to cross examine her. But I think he's going to be very, very circumspect in what he or she allows, sorry, what she allows. The, uh, the, the defense to attack.
0: How strong do you think uh, of a witness Dylan Mortensen and um, uh, Brittany Funk will be for the prosecution? In fact, I believe they they will be <clears throat> prosecution witnesses and and not unless this uh, hearing with uh, Brittany Funk this deposition goes really bad for her. Uh, if it goes bad, then, of course, she'll be a witness for the defense. But if it goes well, I would think that she's going to be, uh, Dylan Mortensen and Brittany Funk are going to be witnesses for the prosecution. I think it puts, you know, Dylan Mortensen sees a male fitting the description of Brian Koberger. And, you know, one of the things that's come out that there could be many more physical descriptions. And when we talk about the physical description of someone, there's something called gait, not spelled G-A-T-E, but spelled G-A-I-T. And that's how a person moves. And that's their physicality. And look, people would, when I was a kid, people would goof on the way I walked. And they said, it's not just you. It's your whole family walks the same way. (laughs) It's like. It's sort of a funny thing, but it's true. People have a certain gait, a certain way they move. And, you know, and I know in a courtroom, obviously, she's not going to say, oh, could Brian Kohlberger get up and walk? They would never allow that. But the physicality, and again, he had a mask on. He had uh, apparently what was described as like almost like a COVID mask. Mm-hmm. A lot of an identification also is in someone's eyes, if you can see their eyes. Um uh, And I'm not saying it's a full fledged. We're just discussing how tough it is to eyewitness identification It's very tough. But that's I mean, I thought about what if she could say, that's the same guy I saw that morning. What if she could say that? How powerful would, and again, it's woulda, shoulda, coulda. So maybe I shouldn't throw that out there. But if she could actually say, not if that's him, it looks like him. How powerful would that be for the jury?
2: Yeah. I mean, you would love to get, you know, Dylan and, and Bethany up on the stand and say, as witness number one, the witness number two, and then, you know, have Bethany talk about the timeline, have Dylan talk about that's him and go with that. Or the the words like, I won't hurt you. I forget what the exact phrase was. You know, that's his voice. But um, we, we talked about this a while ago. And, you know, it's one thing to have her say slam dunk, that's the guy, that's his, those are his eyebrows, that's his voice. But you have to, you're rolling the dice because you're, you'd are you have to be willing to accept the fact that she may not be positive. Um, I think the fact that you get them up on the stand and say he had bushy eyebrows and he was, he was slim build, I think that would be good enough. Because remember, when he's at the trial, he's gonna be wearing a shirt and tie and, and a suit jacket. So you might not be able to actually see this, this he's not going to be wearing the same clothing as if he was wearing you know, something else. So um, you, have to, you have to be really careful about that. Uh, saying he looks like the guy based on his eyebrows, um, I think that's what we've already got. And it's already been uh, testified to. It's, it was already in the uh, in probable cause affidavit. I think that's as far as you want them to go. Because you don't want to go any farther than that, because every time you go, you take another couple of steps farther with the witness and you then allow the, the defense attorney more area to then attack that witness on, on cross-examination. And I think get the, Bethany and Dylan up on the witness stand, one and two, get them to talk very briefly in a very limited manner, limited subject matter, get them off the stand. There's so much other evidence. Um, The fact that they wouldn't be able to identify him in in a lineup, I don't think that hurts the case whatsoever. Uh, I wouldn't want to take that chance. So I would just get him him up there and get him off the stand as quick as possible.
0: Would a judge even allow a witness to say, yes, it looks like? I think a judge would, uh, the defense would object and a judge would probably sustain that objection.
2: Yeah, um, it's going to be probably up to the the judge's discretion because judges make hundreds of decisions. And unless they're absolutely erroneous under the law, their their decision stands. And so remember, this is going to be in open court with the juries, with the jury sitting right there. So she says, well, he had bushy eyebrows. um, You're not going to have the prosecutor then say, well, look at the defendant's eyebrows. Are those the eyebrows that you saw? Right, you know, right. No, no way. Um, it's not going to happen. You know, maybe in a movie you'll see that. But yeah, I don't think a, a judge would would uh, the, the defense is going to if the if, if the prosecutor said does that does the defendant look like the man um, and she says kind of looks like him or anything other than absolutely yes I picked him out of a lineup other than that the prosecute I don't think a judge would have to worry about it I think the the, pros- the defense attorney is going to jump all over, make a lot of hay. They're going to roast that um that uh that witness. So the pro- I don't think the judge would even have to bother making a ruling on it because it it would just kill that witness's credibility. Remember the prosecutors all is playing chess with the defense attorney. They're making moves with their witnesses trying to achieve certain goals and and get certain information in front of the jury, but they also know that there's that they have to block the defendant from saying certain things, so they are very careful in how they phrase their questions, uh, what, the subject matter, the length of time they have this witness on the stand. You know, so it's um, it it wouldn't. I don't think it's, it would hurt the prosecutor in, in prosecution's case in any way, shape, or form if neither of those two, uh, Bethany or or um, Dylan, um, say you know point you know the very dramatic thing in court. you've seen a movie. That's him. No, I don't think that hurts whatsoever.
0: Okay. Let's just uh, listen a little bit more to Bobby Jacone here.
3: The fact that they want to interview her now, which I'm not even clear if it's a deposition, it doesn't appear, maybe just an interview, is the goal there. I-, I think it's to get see what information she has that may ultimately lead them toward another path. Whatever she says, okay, now we know where we can find additional evidence that maybe we want to show at a preliminary hearing. Maybe we don't need Bethany Funk anymore to testify at a preliminary hearing, but she can give us information that and evidence that we can then present. You think that's what's going on here for that interview in Nevada?
1: Well, I think it's possible. It's also unusual. I mean, look, the defense usually gets all the statements from a witness and then the first chance they get, I mean, depositions are generally the purview of a civil trial because most judges want civil trials to settle.
0: You know, even law and crime mike has uh, technical difficulties <laughs> you know so uh, uh, i thought they would have fixed that but they didn't uh, they they're much higher budget than us too so they don't they don't have that excuse so uh, you know just interesting this whole um deposition thing interviewing a witness uh let's face it the defense has the discovery um and, uh, a fa- another favorite lawyer's term Are they on, is the defense on a fishing expedition?
2: They have to be, they have to be, they got to do everything they possibly can uh, within the bounds of uh, their, you know, their oath of um, uh, an accountant of ethics to uh, zealously advocate. They have to go on a fishing expedition. You got to put the bait in the water. You got to see, you got to throw the line out there, see what happens. Um, Because they are, they've got their back to the wall. Every single bit of evidence has been in the possession of the prosecutors it's been gone over with uh, you know FBI agents, technical people from um, you know phone companies, you've got uh, you know fingerprint evidence, you've got uh, blood stain evidence you've got all of the evidence just think about all the amount of evidence that they have and so the defense is getting these things but they're always on their back heel the prosecutor and the prosecution is always, Uh, The state's evidence is always, they're walking forward. Defendants are always kind of like playing catch up. They're on their back heel. And so they have to try. And and if I was them, I would do the same thing. I would look for the most minor inconsistency and say, Your Honor, this is unique, exculpatory. Uh, You know, please let us uh, uh, interview this witness beforehand. Um, This, you know, we need to, and then what they're trying to do is like, like Bobby Chacon says, see where, what she says. Does she really have anything else to offer? If she doesn't, we can negate her as an important witness. We can then, as defense, t- defense side, we can then concentrate on, say, the, the, uh, you know, the, the obtaining, the processing, the safeguarding of, of the blood evidence or something like that. But yeah, this is absolutely uh, a fishing expedition. They have to. They yeah, have
0: well, D- DCPNW, no character assassination of these women witnesses. It's sad for them to be living your life one day and be thrown into the limelight with extreme pressure, put on you the next. DCPNW, right. I agree. However, defense attorneys are going to do whatever the hell they want. The stakes here are potential death penalty. So mm-hmm. they're not going to see it as you see it. You know, They're going to see it as we're going to give him the most vigorous defense possible. And if we have to, you know, beat up a witness, we're going to do so. And any defense attorney worth their salt is going to feel that way. And they're not going to, you know, we used to use the term, they're not going to care about ruffling someone's feathers. They're going to ruffle all the feathers they need to in order to do their job. So PNW, DC, PNW, thank you for that comment. Uh, it It was very much appreciated. And, folks, thank all you guys for tuning in today. I know these early afternoon matinees sometimes take you guys off guard and uh, take Mike Geary off guard, who's usually a, a teaching at school. But, you know, every once in a while he's around, and it's it's great. I was going to go on by myself and uh, do a Coffee with Cannon episode, but I said, you know something? There is some relatively new information, and I only like to use the term all the time, breaking news, because you always hear – all of the TV stations say breaking news. And then they report on a story that we reported on three months ago. And uh, I think that's a little bit dishonest. I think you should say. And, um, but this is interesting. This hearing, uh, this deposition, whatever you want to call it. And last night, myself, Melanie little and Phil Grimaldi. It wasn't even last night. We had another matinee yesterday. We spoke about the gag order in this case, and the potentiality that it could be uh, potentially, well, a small chance, though, reversed, because let's not forget, the hearing begins June 26th, the probable cause hearing. So the next gag order hearing is not till May 25th. So I believe the judge for it to the gag order to be released, the, the judge would have to get right on that uh, and, you know, release the gag order. I don't see it happening. So... You know, I I believe in in a way it could be all academic after June 26, once they have these probable cause hearings. And uh, then people, uh, the press, uh, the families of the victims, and of course, the general public is going to hear a lot more about this case than we know at this time. Mike?
2: Yeah, I think this is a, one of the things about this case is because it's got so much publicity, it's a good learning tool. For a lot of the members of the public, who you know have not worked in law enforcement or, or don't have really experience in any way, shape, or form with law enforcement, because it does allow the public to gain more education and insight into actually what does a, a criminal trial look like, what does a an investigation look like, and and this is it gives the public tremendous insight as to what goes on. So uh, I would always I would implore people to. Read as much as you possibly can about the case. uh, Tune in to any of the broadcasts, um, and you know, don't listen to the talking head stuff. But uh, use it as a learning tool because this is uh, a case that will go from start to finish, and with so much publicity, there'll be so much analysis that the uh, viewer will have will gain tremendous insight into the criminal justice uh, system.
0: One hundred percent, and you know something. In a way, and even myself, I catch myself doing that, we have a uh, sort of a diminished uh, view of defense attorneys. However, if you ever need a a defense attorney at some point in your life, you get in trouble, you'll have a a new respect for the work they do, the job they do, because they're not all the same. There's really great ones and there's not so great ones, and there's some in the middle of the road and some at the lower level. But when you really have a great defense attorney... Of course, and you know, you say it's the best money can buy, but in this case, of course, Brian Koberger is getting defense attorneys that are highly experienced and uh, some that have worked death penalty cases before. Now, I just want to do this short commercial Joe Murray, attorney at law. If you need a criminal defense attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. He's a retired. NYPD member of the service. He retired as a police officer. And he went back and banged out a law degree, not just a law degree, an undergraduate degree before he got his law degree. And Joe is now a fantastic attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. And his website is jmurray-law.com. Not only is Joe a fantastic defense attorney, but he's a huge, huge supporter of this show, of Police Off the Cuff, and he's been supporting us for, I believe, over two years now, and I, I always want to thank Joe. So, Mike, I think we uh, we did a pretty good job, if I may say myself, uncovering this uh, relatively new information. You know, uh, certainly not busting out and breaking news, but inf- interesting information, and it's always good to get the perspective of a uh, of an attorney, uh, professor, attorney, retired NYPD sergeant, and um, again, I want to thank you for coming on the show today because uh, you have no life and you're available at the <laughs> at you're a phone a phone call away. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, you're welcome, Billy. I enjoy this very, very much.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and folks, you know this case is is really a, such a huge, huge case, and there's so much emotion behind this case. And even when, you know, we read the chat and we, we feel some of the anger that we get to people, which is fine. You know, we, we've had anger directed at us when we were police officers, you know. And some people get really mad that they, they say, at sometimes they'll say that, oh, you guys already have him convicted. No, we don't. I'll repeat it again. He's innocent through proven guilty. But, you know, we see all the evidence that the prosecution has and how the defense, and we like to discuss it. And uh, again... You're entitled to uh, freedom of speech. You're entitled. As long as you don't go over the top and get nasty with us, we'll listen and comment on your comments. Mike, final words.
2: Yeah, uh, be patient and uh, please pay attention. Everyone, please pay attention to the uh, probable cause hearing and uh, learn from it. And I think people will probably feel a lot better off about the uh, evidence against Brian Koberger. They'll be much more sure. Uh, of his guilt or innocence however they feel and so I think that's a good thing so uh, please stay tuned
0: Folks thank you for tuning in today have a great day God bless from police off the cuff take care everybody One episode just enough